Now, if you've been with us last week, we ended on a very sad note, kind of a, a downer going into at the end of chapter 19, if you remember. The wickedness was raining so bad in the plains that Sodom and Gomorrah and, and those cities in that plain had to be destroyed by God because not even ten righteous dwelt within Sodom. And then we find that it never stopped there, that, that we saw a ramification that happens when you live in a society and you act like the, the society, you think like the society, like the world. It will permeate in the lives of those who are righteous. And we see here that Lot was a righteous man. We know and even and, and Peter that we see that he was a righteous man. He, he loved God. But he dwelt too much and acted too much and, and lived too much like the world. And what happened is it had a, an effect on his children. And that was the sad part at the end of chapter 19. We saw that they, yes, they finally made it to the mountains, just like God said, get out of Sodom, get to the mountains. And remember, he was disobedient. Ah, this, this, this over little small city over here is good enough. Let us go there because I think I'm going to die if I try to make it all the way to the mountains. And you know the story. Once he saw that God brought brimstone and fire down on those cities, he, I think the fear of God came in him and said, hey, uh, girls, uh, his two girls, hey, you and I, we've got to go up to the mountains. That's exactly what God has called us to do. They got up there, but then we see the sad part that the, the daughters had been affected by the lifestyle of this world. And they had a fear. The fear that they weren't going to get married, the fear there was no other men around, it appears. The fear that they weren't going to have a baby. They took matters in their own hands, and you notice, you know the story. They got their dad drunk lot and laid with him to get pregnant. And there's lessons there we learn that out of fear, you and I can go but again and again back to the old nature to make decisions. But again and again, we go back to relying upon what the world has said. But again and again, we go back to the ways that are go contrary to the truths of God, and we, re we rely upon the sin of our past. And here we see that played out at the end of 19. Today, we see again a righteous man, a man that's after God's own heart, a faithful man. And his wife, Abraham and Sarah, who but again and again go back to rely upon the flesh out of fear and, and do not follow God's truth, but, God, but follow their own fear out of flesh and use their flesh to kind of compensate and to try to make it up in this life. And one of the things that are really sad is the fact that it's a sad report that one's lack of faith, through one's lack of faith, selfishness, the weakness of their faith, God again, but again and again, has to come back to bring us out of the situations we find ourselves in. 
And today we'll see Abraham fall again in his walk of faith. And as tragic as it is, as we study the word of God, God uses his word to be able to encourage us in our walk of faith. So here we start here in Genesis chapter 20 verse 1. And it says, Abraham journeyed from there to the south. Where's there? Hebron. That's where God had taken him. He was up into the mountains. He was looking down upon the plains. And he moves from there to the south and dwell between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. And so we find that they move on south. Now, it doesn't say specifically why they moved to the south. Was it the fact that he's looking, they're looking over the plains and they just, remember in 19, he was left there, Abraham looking across the plains, seeing the destruction and come to realize not even 10 were righteous in those cities and to to save them and God had to destroy it. We don't even know if he even knew that Lot was saved out of this or not. But whatever it was, Maybe he says, this is too much. I don't want to remember what's going on here. Maybe the mountains weren't quite the the fit in their their lifestyle anymore. Maybe they wanted to go to the shore. So they move here 50 miles down, about 12 miles south of Gaza Strip, right on the border of enemy territories. This is the Philistine territory. And he chooses to move him and Sarah and his entire entourage to the water scene. Maybe they thought the shore would make them feel better after watching all this. Maybe they would feel there were better opportunities for them. But whatever it was, they're going near the enemy territory and we find there's consequences and risk when you move yourself to a new place if if it's not of God or not. So we see this played out here. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, She is my sister, and Abimelech, the king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But again and again, Abraham and Sarah finds themselves right back where they were, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 12. Going a place where they shouldn't have been going, and then lying to try to get them to save their own skin. Now if you remember, Abraham convinced his wife to say that, well actually in, in chapter 12, Abraham said, she's my sister. Nowhere Sarah seemed quiet. She didn't say a word. And she was taken then and God had to intervene bringing on plagues to cause them to be able to free her and get her free from the, that harem or that bondage. Here we see it again. Abimelech, a royal title for the Philistine rulers of that day. Philistine ruler taking Sarah. The, it's just like um, uh, uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. It's a title. Or Agag for the Amorites. They're just a title. So Abimelech is a title, a royal title of this king who at that time it was legal for them. As long as that woman was single, he could take her for his harem. Many times because of the lust of their flesh, because she's so beautiful. But many times they took those women to bring them into harem 
into their harem as a political statement that I can take your women from you as a nation or from you as a leader and she's mine and I rule over you. Keep in mind, what was the purpose and what was the reason for this king to take Sarah? She's 90 years old or so. So now she is, she's beautiful. We know she's beautiful. And, and because of the fact that God has given a promise that she was going to be able to be youthful enough to be able to get pregnant and to carry a baby and to breastfeed this baby and to care for this baby, God had obviously miraculously has given a vitality, a beautiful vitality and strength of a young woman to be able to do that. And this king obviously recognized, here he is, this, this man, Abraham, his wife, or this woman who's with him, who they both proclaim is his sister, and all this entire entourage, this is a wealthy, powerful man coming into my area as a king. He's not just slipping in and buying a house, and everyone's like, oh, did you see someone buy a house on the street? No, I didn't see. Oh, there's the moving van. Oh, look at that. I wonder who that is. No, that wasn't that way. Like today, when people moved in, people took notice. And was the king making a statement to Abraham and says, I'm going to take this woman, she's beautiful, and part of my harem to make a statement. Well, it's interesting And a point one that I'll make for you is, did you realize that believers sin? Now, I know that doesn't happen here in this church. You as believers don't sin. I understand that. But do you know that do believers do sin? And they go back again and again to that sin when they rely upon the flesh and do it out of fear. But it's one of those things about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't hold back and hide the sins of believers, do they? Here's a righteous man. We know Abraham is saved by faith. We saw that early on in Genesis when he put his faith in God and God alone. We know that Noah was a righteous man. But we also know he got drunk and exposed himself. We know Moses was God's man, but we now know that he had a temper and he actually killed a man. We know David was God's man. But God out of, David, out of his lust, took a woman and then plotted and had someone kill one of his key soldiers. But the Bible doesn't hide those things from us. God brings it to light and shows how God's mercy and grace is upon these men's lives. And that it is upon our lives as well that if we would come back and have a repenting and confessing heart, He is willing to forgive and to restore. Another point you have to understand and take from this is the fact that here's Abraham who is an older gentleman. Many times people, in their, when you're younger, you think, oh, mom and dad, because they're old, they don't sin. Oh, grandma and grandpa, they never sin. Just because you age does not mean you don't sin. You're still vulnerable by again and again to go back to the old flesh and to do the old ways out of fear and out of the lack of the fact that the Holy Spirit is not reigning in your life.
Age doesn't automatically sanctify you. <laughs> I wish it did. But when you, and unless you yield to the Holy Spirit, unless you trust in the Spirit of God to empower you and to strengthen you on a day-to-day basis, but again, and again, you will go back to the old lifestyle. And it never gets better. Matter of fact, if you go back to the old lifestyle, it actually gets worse for you. Ask any drug addict. Ask any alcoholic. Ask anyone who is in bondage to any sin. It always gets worse and worse going back. And we'll find here as well for Abraham and Sarah. It got a little worse and actually put it at greater risk because they chose to rely upon their flesh out of fear. Now, these recordings in the Bible do not encourage us to sin, but to warn us and beware of the sin that can happen. Even through these great men, we have to understand what the scriptures say. If you remember back in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, or 10 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So why did Abraham sin? Why did he feel out of fear that he had to tell this king that she was his sister? It's because he has a sinful nature. He had been justified by faith. We saw that. Yes. God gave him a new name. Yes. Gave him a purpose and a plan and a calling upon his life. Yes and yes and yes. All good. All great. But that did not change his old nature. It still was present in him. It's in presence still within us. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And it's only by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us and the work of Christ on the cross that you and I as believers can have victory over the old nature. And, but this is not just an automatic thing. Yes, you've been justified as you've, like you've never sinned before, but then we look at the sanctification process, and that's about pursuing God on a daily basis by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that God is going to work out this old nature and going to make a shape and change you to come to a point when he takes you into his presence and then you will receive your glorified state. But we must walk in the spirit if we're to hope to overcome the temptations that come our way and the tests. And here we see Abraham and Sarah's move put them at dangerous position that they find themselves in. And we must be alert to these things. Because if you find yourself in fear, that is not of God. And that fear and that doubt and those, those things where you start relying upon your, your flesh to overcompensate, to try to get through the situation at hand, 
You must be very, very careful because we even see in Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We have to recognize we are weak people. And that apart from God, we can do nothing. And apart from God's spirit empowering us to live this life, we cannot have victory over our flesh. And yes, over the fear that this world and other men or women can do to you. But in verse 3, we see, but God. And I love that. When you're sitting there and you go, oh, what did I just do? What did I just say? Where did I just go? Do you take the time and say, but God? But God. And we see, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, indeed, you are a dead man. Oh, that's a heavy dream. <laughs> it was clear. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, you're going to be a dead man. It was pretty clear. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, he recognized who's speaking. This is a very clear message that he's getting during his dream. Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Hey, if you're coming after me, are you going to take out this entire nation I rule over too? And then Abimelech says, did he not say to me, did not Abraham, this man, say to me, she's my sister? And she, Sarah, this woman that came with him, even she herself said, he is my brother. Do you see the, the going back to sin, how it's even gotten worse? In chapter 12, it was just Abraham, she's my sister. Now we see not only he's saying she's my sister, but now even Sarah's lying and saying he's my brother. Not a good example of a spiritual leader within his household. So what does Abimelech say? He continues and says, he says here in verse 5, he says, in the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He's sitting here going, I'm clean here. I know touchy her. <laughs> there's, no, I, there's nothing happened here. And I don't, you know, he's sitting here, I don't know what's going on here. I was, my heart was right here. She was single, and I have the right to bring her into my harem because I'm the king of this area. And innocence of my hands, I didn't touch her. And in verse 6, you see God said to him in a, in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. But do you notice, he said, I only, he only says, I know the integrity of your heart on this issue. I know you didn't know that she was his wife. But you notice he did not say the innocence of my hands. Why? Well, it tells us right here. For I also withhold, withheld you from sinning against me. Take note. This adulterous situation we find that they find themselves in. Because I, I know your heart was right. You didn't know she was married. 
But your hands weren't innocent because you, you had an, an agenda, but it was only because I stopped you. Because you, Abimelech, was sinning against me. See, when someone chooses to mess with the marriage they're in, you're not sinning not only against your spouse, you're sinning against God himself. Because that marriage is a covenant. Not just between you, man and woman, but between man, woman, and God. And so God made it very clear to him, you sin against me when you mess with me in the marriage. God sees all things. He knows all things. He's, he's all powerful. He's everywhere. And God intervened and stopped Abimelech from touching Sarah. Why? Because God promised that his, the Redeemer would come through that lineage. And God gives a promise that he will go to great lengths, whatever it takes, to keep that promise. Even with the foolishness of Abraham and Sarah lying and trying to move and go someplace, God says, I am still going to protect the two of you because I'm going to fulfill my promise. Continued here in verse 6, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pay, pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. It's interesting here. You're about to sin against me. You're about to impact and put me at risk, God says, to, to not be able to fulfill what I have promised. And so I'm going to intervene. And I'm going to intervene in a way that you know for a fact that God is in control. And he brought his word very clearly to Abimelech. But I love these verses here because... It encourages us all because he says to him, you're going to restore this man's wife back to him. Back to the right setting. Back to the right position. Why? Because for he is a prophet. He is a messenger of mine. He is going to, he speaks for me. He represents me. He's an ambassador of me. And yes, he's really messed up. But I have a calling on his life and he is going to continue on working his life to fulfill that calling. Now that encourages us. Because when you got saved and God gave you gift or gifts, spiritual gifts to do a work for his kingdom and you continue and yes you but again and again you go back and you've relied upon the old flesh, your old ways or the fears let you back to sin or whatever it may be. God says I have a calling on your life and I'm going to come in and I'm still going to fulfill that calling in your life. Because once you're saved, you're saved. Because you have put your trust in me and I, have made, and I have saved you. You've been justified like you've never sinned before. Now you're in the process of sanctification. And it's going to be bumps and bruises and ups and downs and falls and backed up. But we're going to bring you through this process. I'm going to refine you. 
right until I take you home and bring you into my presence and glorify you. God saved you, and he started a good work in you, and he is going to be faithful to complete that work in you, regardless of how you feel. I don't know about you, but that's very encouraging to me, that God is in control. Because if, if I was in control, but again and again, I'd go back, right? Would you find yourself, but again and again, go back to the old life? If that speaks of you today, today gives you hope because you, all you have to do is confess. All you have to do is repent, come back. God has forgiven you. God paid the penalty for that sin. Let him do a good work in you. Get back up and let's start focusing and allow the Holy Spirit to empower you to keep moving forward. Because soon and very soon, God is coming back for us. And I hope you're ready. But here God says he's a prophet. A representation of me. But I love this next part. And I hope you don't miss this. And he, Abraham, will pray for you and you shall live. God says, okay, let me make this, take this in control and let me figure this all out. And let me put this all in order and we're going to restore and we're going to put Abraham over here for a little while. Maybe I have to put him in the desert for a while. No, no, no. How he's sanctifying Abraham through this is he says, okay, Abraham, you need to pray for Abimelech. You need to be humbled and you need to humble yourself and you need to pray for him and you need to come and you need to reconcile with Abimelech through prayer. And through prayer, you become humbled and you also are willing to forgive and to be forgiven. And it's only through prayer that that will happen. Spending time with your Lord, talking to him about the situation at hand so that your heart will be in line with his heart. And his heart was very clear. To restore Sarah back to the right setting as his wife. To continue to live this life, to fulfill the promise that God had given them. That the Messiah would come through that lineage and it had to be preserved. Imagine if God did not intervene. Then people today would be doubting if the Messiah actually did come through that line. Because there would be two men who would have slept with her and they would have doubted if that was which, which is Isaac really of this from this man or really from Abraham. See, there would have been questions, there would have been doubt that the enemy would have used. But God says, no, there will be no doubt that I will fulfill my promise just as I said I would. And so we see that Abraham had to be humbled. He had to have a forgiving heart and to be forgiven in his heart, knowing that God is still with him and working through him and will fulfill that promise. And there was a change there because he did pray. And in because he prayed, but if you do not restore her, Know that you shall surely die. He gave them, Abimelech, a very clear indication what would happen if he didn't have a change of heart. 
So I'll give you a second point. The first point was what? Believers do sin, do they not? The second point I'll give you is that when believers sin, they suffer. Suffering comes when you sin. We see here Abraham suffered a few ways. One is that he suffered in his character. He's no longer that bright light. He's no longer the salty salt. His salt is losing its flavor. It's losing its taste. He's no longer affected by his, just his character and his presence. Because the people around him, the non-believers, look and going, you're a representative, you're a prophet, but you just lied to me. We also suffer in the fact of his testimony. He's no longer able to speak to these pagan neighborhoods and neighbors about the truths of God, that God is truth and I follow God's truth because he's out there talking and telling lies and going against God's truth. Because you'll lose your testimony. And Abraham also suffered and he lost his ministry. He walked away from the source of blessing that brought upon judgment. Judgment to those almost all around him. To a pagan world. See, when a child of God gets out of the will of God, the discipline of God usually follows. And God continues to discipline until there's a change of heart of that believer. Look at Jonah. Jonah brought a storm. Almost killed all the men on that boat. Until he changed. Abraham almost lost Sarah and Isaac to be because of the sin. God had to come in and bring a correction. And you know what the sad part is? How suffering comes. Not only does this, when you sin, the suffering comes within your own life. But the, the problem is, is we can also find that suffering never affects just you. Sin never just affects you. It's, suffering affects you, but and those around you, it's part of your life. And Abraham's no different. Because we know in Genesis chapter 26, Isaac, his son, does exactly the same sin as his father. Him and Rebecca lie about her relationship being his wife. And that's even worse, right? Because there was absolute no truth in that. It is sad when our sins affect outsiders. But when you see your sons and daughters duplicating your sin in your own family, I think it's the biggest tragedy. That is why we are to raise our children to the ways of the Lord. That is why we must be examples in our house. We must not just talk the talk. We must walk as well. We must be doers of the word. 
We must show the humbleness when we do fall short, that we are humbled enough to at least acknowledge and reveal and not be like Abraham, we will see, and throw out the excuses. We must come to a point of repentance and confession. I understand the discipline is not enjoyable. But it is profitable in the end when it produces the joy and the holiness and the purity of the one that God is doing a work in the life that brings glory to God. So we see in verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all of his servants and told all these things in their hearing. The men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you would have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? Can you see him? He comes out of his dream. He tells all of his people, you won't believe what God the Lord showed to me. This woman is not single. He, she's married. And we're all in the conditions we are finding ourselves in because of the sin of that man did to us. And he says there in the, in, what, what were you do, did in your view? He's basically saying, what are you thinking, man? Are you insane? What are you thinking? Why would you do this to us? We did nothing to you. You came into our area and you causing these problems? And this, your God is about to destroy us? What were you gaining from this? What do you think you were doing about this? It is really sad when you see a, a pagan king, Abimelech, rebuking and, and telling Abraham... This is not right what you've done. You ought not to have done this. Even as a a non-believer understands right and wrong. Very humbling process for Abraham. But Abimelech had... Absolute right asking these questions of Abraham. What view, what were you thinking you were going to get out of this? See, in the ministry, it's no different. So many times someone might be struggling to sin and keep going back to sin, going back to sin. They sit there and they talk with a brother and they're talking through with the brother about this, the issue and the sin that they're dealing with. They're struggling and they don't know how to deal with it. And finally, it becomes so bad and they spiral out of control and they hit bottom. Then all of a sudden they call the, oh, let me get a hold of the pastor and let me get the pastor in here because, uh, you know, this is really bad. And I walk in and I hear their story and I know what's going on. And I was like, what were you thinking, man? Do you think that sin was going to lead to something great and good and wonderful when it goes clearly against the word of God? Did you not know and understand after all the teachings you've been listening to Sunday after Sunday that somehow it didn't affect you or didn't pertain to you? What were you thinking? What was your view? 
And it's so sad to see that man curled up into a fetal position so many times. Oh, God, please, I just want my wife back, or I want my kids back, I want my job back. But what were you thinking? What were you thinking? See, fear, your flesh, this world will cloud your thinking. It will cause you to think the way they think, which is destruction, it's darkness. Of course you're blinded. You're walking in darkness. What do you think you're going to do? Find your way? It's just a trick of the enemy. And here's Abraham and Sarah. It continues. And Abraham said, and here's three excuses. Here's some of the excuses that Abraham's going to throw out at him here. But Abraham said in verse 11, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. So there's the first one. I'm wandering, as we will see. I went down in this area, and I looked, and oh, these people are not God-fearing people. They don't think like they were thinking, and they're going to take my wife. They're going to kill me so they can have my beautiful wife. This is not going to be good. So, of course, I leaned on my own understanding. I did what I did before, and I kind of got through with that. I mean, I survived that one. So I'll just use the same excuse. She's my sister. See, that's a, that, that, that mentality to think because you made it safely, un, completely unhard, maybe a little singed from the last time you sinned, this time it will just get a little singed and you, I, you can tolerate that, so we'll just sin again like that. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled to think you can continue in the sin and got through it the first time and you'll get through it the second time without being harmed. The second excuse but indeed, she is truly my sister. <laughs> it's the woman's fault. Nothing new under sunny. She is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father and not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So now he says, I am telling a half truth here. It is true if you just take it from a face value. But a half-truth is a full lie when you take a half-truth and you use it to deceive someone with it. And that's exactly what he did. And he used it to justify why he was going to sin because he wanted to save his own skin. He did not believe that God was with him in this situation. Why is that? Why didn't Abraham Man of God, not believe God was in it in this move, that he had to lie. Well, he gave another excuse. And it came to pass when God caused me. Oh, now he's gone to blaming God. That God caused me to wander from my father's house. That I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me. And every place, every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. 
So the third excuse, he's now blaming God. But if you look at the ancient Hebrew word here for wander, it is not a wander that God would cause. He wasn't correcting Abraham. Remember, they caused, if you look at the scriptures, the same word wander for the Israelites in the wilderness was out of disobedience. And they wandered 40 years. Here we see that same word taking place. And he says that God caused me to wander from my father's house. And every place they went, they had the same situation they had found themselves in. Who is she? Oh, she's my sister. Oh, he's my brother. Time after time is implied here. Not just a one-time deal that they like. They were consistently here telling lies to whoever was going to ask. It reminds me, being in the ministry as long as I have in California, New Jersey, and here, we even had it here as well. In the earlier days, a few years back, where people will come and they go and you don't know and you don't get always get to talk to them and they come in really quick at the last minute and they leave. There's no fellowship before, no fellowship after. You're just like, okay, who are they? And I hope to get to meet them and get to see if they're brothers and sisters. Whatever reason, because we have guests here, all kinds of people come and go. It's fine. But what happens is that they portray themselves as being married when they're not married. They're living together, but they're not married. But they pretend, and they come across, and they have a little bit of conversations. You would think they're married because they just act and look like they're married. And then one of two things usually happens. The Spirit of God is so heavy through the teaching of the Word of God, they become convicted, and they don't stay. They go find another fellowship that has no problem being able to be comfortable sitting there Sunday after Sunday, knowing that they're in sin. But this one couple, praise the Lord, was so convicted Sunday after Sunday that it, they all of a sudden just came and asked for a meeting and, and came, came over and, and confessed that they weren't married. And they wanted to make it right. And so they separated for, I think, a day or two days while things were arranged. The license got made, and we married them within two days or so. But the relief that they had when they realized they could become, get out of that sin and that their confession and, and their testimony, the fact that they were in two or three other churches prior to coming here, and they had no problem living in sin. Because it was tolerated or the word wasn't taught or whatever the reason they just didn't come to the point where they realized they were living in sin and they needed to stop living this lie and when they got married you should have saw the continence their demeanor their life just changed the joy and the peace that filled their hearts were so obvious to all of us because they didn't continue to live and go back again and again and be forced to tell a lie over and over and over. You can be set free and be free indeed. Then we wrap up here and we see then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, 
gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother. <laughs> That's a funny one, isn't it? <laughs> he didn't even say your husband, your brother. A thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech his, Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So how did God intervene? God brought some kind of affliction upon the king, making him so sick and so unable to go touch Sarah, his new addition to the harem, God had to bring upon a sickness or something, and maybe another plague on his, him, his wife, and everybody in his family to the point where no one could even have a child because he closed up the womb of every woman. So that Sarah would be protected and things would be brought back in the right standing. We see here in the scripture a key word that he uses here. He says that he was vindicating Sarah before everyone. Hey, I am going to give, I'm going to bless you with this. You could stay in the land. I want people that watching all this take place. I want everyone who's watching you that you have been vindicated. You are free. You have done nothing wrong. You had, we, we no touching. Everything is back set right. Set right. That's the word there where he says, thus she was reproved. She was set right. Now, maybe she was rebuked as well for her sin, for saying he was the brother. But here we see he was, she was set in her, in her family, her community, everything that she hears, that she is in the right standing, that going forward there would not have a black, any kind of a mark on her of something wrong. That's God's grace. Did she deserve it? No. Did he deserve it? No. But God's grace is unmerited and favored. He, they blessed them beyond what they should have received. But Abraham prayed. And Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants were all healed and were able to then again, once again, have children. <coughs> now, it's interesting. If you remember the last situation, a king tried to bless Abraham with stuff. He refused because he wanted no one to get credit for God's blessing upon his life. Remember that? See the difference here in this one? He couldn't, he had to receive. He must receive from this pagan king. Because his testimony and everything was just shot. He couldn't, he couldn't have a righteous stand in the position he found himself. He had to be humble enough to receive that it was God that did the, yes, working through this pagan king. But we find him that 
Abraham couldn't stand there and say, you know, I don't need to take your stuff because of the fact that uh, he was compromised. He couldn't take and reclaim the higher ground, uh, a moral ground here. But imagine. The message is very clear for us. We must walk daily in the powering of the Holy Spirit in your life. You must draw close to him from the very beginning of the day when you wake up to the point of you going to bed. And you're talking to him when you wake up and you're talking to him when you're closing your eyes waiting to fall asleep. And trusting that God will reign in your life. And anything of your flesh, any doubts and the fears and anything of this worldliness will just fade away because you're seeking after him with all of your heart and mind, soul and strength. So that you do not find yourself returning again and again down that path of disobedience and rebellion against God. So as we come to the table, God instituted this so that we would not forget, that we would remember what He has already done for your life. He has already done in a way that is pleasing and honoring to Him. That you have surrendered your life to Him fully. Without compromising. Without holding something of your flesh back. Or holding something of this world back. Or holding something of fears of the past. Because your past does not dictate your future. Did you know your past doesn't have to dictate your future? That you can press on to the highward calling that God has in your life. What is that calling? Be an ambassador for Christ. Fulfill the call, let God fulfill that calling in your life. And do not make decisions based on fear or the unknown. Make it based on the promises that God gives you by his word.